Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Keto, and I'm a PhD student in the Department of the History of Art at Yale University. Today, I'm delighted to join Martabel Wasserman, TJ Demos, and Lori Palmer for a conversation about art, pedagogy, and environmental justice. Martabel Wasserman is a scholar, artist, writer, and curator who has an interdisciplinary practice at the intersections of art, activism, and academic research. She writes on the aesthetics of solidarity and feminist art and environmentalism, and she has curated numerous exhibitions. Her work has been exhibited at the University of California at Santa Cruz, Van Gallery in Los Angeles, and elsewhere. TJ Demos is professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of History of Art and Visual Culture at UC Santa Cruz. He is also the director of the Center for Creative Ecologies at UC Santa Cruz. He's published numerous articles and books, and his research focuses on modern and contemporary art and its politics, particularly amid the growing biopolitical conflicts around ecology and climate change. His most recent book is Beyond the World's End, Arts of Living at the Crossing. Lori Palmer is professor in the Department of Art at UC Santa Cruz. Her sculpture, installation, public art, and writing is often concerned with questions of materiality, collaboration, and social and environmental justice. Among her recent projects are the book In the Aura of a Whole, Exploring Sites of Material Extraction, and her work on the collaborative public project, Chicago Torture Justice Memorials. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that indigenous peoples and nations, including Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pagasset, Niantic, and the Quinnipiac and other Algonquin-speaking peoples have stewarded through generations the land from which I am broadcasting today. Martabel, TJ, and Lori, welcome to CAA Conversations. Thank you so much for joining. Um, my first question is if each of you could speak a little bit about where you are in the world and in your practice right now, how did you arrive at this place? Uh, Martabel, could we start with you? My name is Martabel Wasserman. I'm a second year PhD student in art, in art history at Stanford. I have a background in art practice and I live in Santa Cruz. I am in this place because I have found art history um, and art historical narratives to be really useful in thinking about my own activist and pedagogical and artistic practices. So I um, find myself wanting to do interdisciplinary work in that within the context of art history. And I'm TJ Demos. Um, I'm speaking from Santa Cruz, from uh, Ohlone and Amamutsun unceded indigenous territory. And uh, I've been at U University of California, Santa Cruz for uh, almost six years now. And before that, I was in London for 10 years teaching at University College London. Um, and before that, I taught at the Maryland Institute College of Art after getting my PhD in 2000 from Columbia. So it's been um, quite a journey. And uh, increasing, increasingly, my work has, has uh, been directed at uh, uh, thinking about the intersection of art history and visual culture more broadly and uh, political ecology and, um, and really radical politics, I think. Uh, so within that intersection or, or nexus, um, uh, environmental justice or climate justice is, is really has, has emerged as a, as a key concern in terms of my research and several of my uh, recent books like Decolonizing Nature and Against the Anthropocene and most recently from Duke, uh, Beyond the World's End, Arts of Living at the Crossing. 
Um, and it's also informed my teaching and, and uh, my activism um, and collaborative projects, uh, including ones that it, one that is ongoing with uh, Marta Bell and Lori, um, which, is, uh, which has been really exciting to, um, in some ways, recalibrate uh, how I uh, operate and um, exist in the world in relationship to others, uh, uh, in relation to collective collaborative participatory uh, research and also organizing and activism um, in part through the um, through our organization which is the Democratic Socialists of America DSA and particularly the um, eco-socialist working group my name is Lori Palmer I am an artist and a writer and a teacher and I also find myself in Santa Cruz on unceded territory of the Awaswa speaking peoples um, and I have been at Santa Cruz for five years after 30 years in Chicago. I taught at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for 20 of those 30 years. And, um, and I am um, sort of surprised to find myself in a beachside resort town at this point in time in my life, but so pleased to discover Marta Bill and TJ and the Eco-Socialist Working Group because I've always done uh, both collaborative work and my own separate practice. There, there's, there's a kind of balance to that that is kind of crucial for my psyche, but also for my political being and understanding of arts sort of potential in the world. And also for our own, um, uh, you know, personal senses of transformation and engagement and imagination and curiosity and possibility. So, so, so I, um, when I got to Santa Cruz, I, I didn't know where I was going to find those people because after 30 years in a really, really rich arts community in Chicago that I dearly miss, um, I was just thinking, what am I doing here? And then over the last couple of years, this group has just sort of formed itself and it's turned into a very exciting um, group to play with and think with and do serious work with and to diverge from my perspective from any party line but also be brought into relation to collective politics in a very politicized moment and it's just it's a very exciting thing to be part of and it is, as everyone will say, much bigger than the three of us. We just happen to be the ones who also have our feet in the in the art world and or different art worlds in various ways. I also want to say that um, in my capacity as a professor in the art department at UCSC, I am uh, the director of graduate studies of a new program in environmental art and social practice, and that is, um, you know, institutionally situated and you know, has all of the structural difficulties that go with that, but it also feels like a, and it was started, the idea came way before I arrived at Santa Cruz. I've only been plunked in this position to kind of shepherd it into, into place. Um, Newton and Helen Harrison were instrumental in helping develop this idea many years ago, but it has finally congealed and we're doing our first admissions this fall. So it feels like a, a point of possibility within the academy that um, I hope will be a way to reach out from the, the institution and engage actually in many of the ways that our group is already doing. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, lots of, lots of potential in there. Great. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, this 
podcast focuses often on questions of pedagogy and teaching. And so I wanted to ask kind of this question of kind of activism and practice and what part what part teaching teaching plays in that, particularly for you, TJ and, and Laurie? Well, it plays a complex part, I think, in, in different spheres because we're all working across uh, different contexts, actually. And some of them are potentially conflictual uh, or um, ruled by different logics that may come into uh, conflict. Um, so the university is where you know, that's where most of the maybe conventional pedagogy takes place, even though many of us are trying to um, disrupt some of that in moving more toward um, a kind of uh, like emancipatory pedagogy, kind of like what uh, Paul Schreier might have talked about in terms of the pedagogy of the, of the oppressed, for instance, something that could be um, emancipatory based on shared learning, um, collective uh, research and investigation. Yet all that is also in conflict with the university demands of, uh, of uh, grading and issuing credentials for students and being part of a neoliberal enterprise, which has become quite extreme, um, as we all know, in recent years. Uh, and you know that's, that's quite difficult to operate within, especially within a university context in California that was once free and remains public, but is always, you know, is ever threatened by the forces of privatization. Uh, and its transformation into a machine of debt production. So, uh, um, so that can be, you know, quite challenging. And I, I think, tried to um, invent counter strategies uh, within that system, like uh, the founding of the Center for Creative Ecologies, which is something that I set up when I came to UCSC um, as a place of interdisciplinary um, research, uh, bringing different students, undergrads, grad students, and faculty together along with community members and uh, uh, activists and organizers from outside the university to think about forming new networks of collaborative learning and sharing. So that's, that's one thing that's been really important to me. And you can check out the website if you'd like to learn more about that. Um, but then there's also activist pedagogy, like, like the kind of pedagogy that we practice within um, DSA and activist circles, which is, um, really completely different in many ways. It's about uh, listening to others, practicing forms of uh, um, compassionate and empathetic listening, um, being together, uh, acknowledging that there is no ultimate authority, that there are different levels of experience, but we're all committed deeply to sharing and making space for each other and learning together and from one another. And that's been really exciting. It's, it's, a, it's a, a multi-generational group coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and it, you know, it, it challenges really the kind of um, university codification of learning and, and teaching in all sorts of ways that I think are really exciting and, and, uh, and emancipatory right now. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. And I think within this larger context that we're all absolutely preoccupied with uh, just weeks before the presidential election, which is turning out to be so momentous, right? Our, our political circumstances, our ecological circumstances are so precarious these days. Um, pedagogy in many ways seems to be crucial to developing new forms of life and ways of living together. Uh, so that can be really exciting to, um, participate in collective process practices of collectivization uh, that 
somehow reorganize our our uh, our beings and um, uh, you know our, our beings are the ways in which we're, we are uh, we we be together um, in all sorts of radical ways. Yeah, that um, I just want to reiterate how great the Center for Creative Ecologies has been as a, a kind of um, you know, other structure within the existing um, given structures of the university. It's been a real haven since I got here to find that. Um, but also for me, um, I am, I came from a private arts school and um, teaching there for two decades. And I'm now teaching um, at a public university where the, and I, we don't, we haven't had a grad program until this moment. So I've, for the first time in my life in a long, time of teaching, teaching only undergrads, and I've enjoyed it so much. And I've found, I've learned so much from these students who are coming from a, mostly from really different places than the students that I was teaching, who were also really wonderful. But I, I feel like there are so many different levels of possibility and um, engagement in the university. You know, there's the the, the structural conflicts that are real between the different classes in the university that have been very active at UC Santa Cruz in the past year, for sure, grad students, faculty, administration, staff, and undergrads all sort of occupying different positions and in conflict in various ways and in solidarity in other ways, but- Especially, the, sorry, Laura, but especially with the COLA wildcat strike, that's right? exactly what I'm referring to mostly, but, um, but the, the, Thing that happens with undergrads as it has to me a revolutionary potential on the sort of daily level of speaking with them and learning from them about their lives and about how, especially because I get to teach creative classes with them, how they tell their stories and how they want to um, craft their story going forward. So I do feel like there is a lot still to be done within the context of the university. Even, you know, I, I Fred Moten and Stefano Harney have this wonderful, um, you know, complex relation to describing the university. And, and there, I think there are still, from what I understand from some of what they say in my experience, there's still nodes in it that are worth um, occupying and using and, and getting stuff from, even as many of us are doing the work of reform within it when you know we really want a revolution that, that changes those structures dramatically. So, um, and I also think that uh, something like the MFA program, and I won't tout it a lot, but I am pretty excited about its potential, that maybe that can also, again, direct energies from the university outward to the surrounding communities, and even globally, you know, these days it won't all be locally. Um, so I think that there's a lot to do, but I think that it's very, very complex. Um, I just want to add prior to going back to graduate school, I um, did teach at Cal State Long Beach and also um, one course at UCSC. And it's challenging to go from um, being in collaboration and conversation with different people to like reoccupying the role of student and upholding the certain like performative codes that that requires. And I definitely broke some of those in my MFA program in such a way that I don't want to do again, by which I just mean like you have to perform so serious. Like if, the, if you have a lightness about it, that can be really offensive to people. Um, 
even though it's really hard to get everything so seriously in this moment when uh, it seems like there's so much else going on in the world that um, kind of asks us to take our academic work or artistic practice a little bit um, more lightly, if that makes sense. Um, but you like can't, can't really do that without getting um, kind of dismissed as not serious or rigorous. Um, I'm not sure if that exactly translates, but um, I think what I am trying to raise is the difficulty of um, having a, an activist practice that's very collaborative across different um, roles that we occupy in the university um, and then going back within the space of the institution uh, and, and being a graduate student. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful point about the degree to which kind of lightness or even joy is not seen as a radical practice within the university. And, and that is that is limiting. Um, I wanted to ask, you've referenced the, the collaborative project that you're all engaged with. And I was I was hoping that I could ask you more more about that um, and, and what you're doing. Martabelle, why don't you start? We're actually working on a few different ongoing projects. Um, the, well, we're working on um, a project under the rubric of abolition ecology, which started as a series of walks in Santa Cruz, which builds on a walking practice that Lori introduced to our group, um, where we walked portions of the Salinas River. Um, this summer, we did multiple walks and talks at different sites of um, surveillance, of displacement, of histories of extraction, um, his histories of um, colonialism in Santa Cruz and trying to connect our ideas about eco-socialism to um, like an abolitionist framework. Um, and I think that'll continue to happen as, as walks and talks, but also maybe take other forms. And then the second ongoing project is the Multi-Species Tribunal uh, against private property in defense of what's common. I think that's the current um, title. And that also developed from a series of walks um, along the Salinas River talking about what is uh, pri private, how privatization impacts us um, as humans and non-humans, um, what we hold in common while recognizing the term common is really complicated. Um, and that project predates my arrival to Santa Cruz, but I feel uh, very grateful that I was able to connect with TJ and Lori, who um, I think talked about this in, in relationship to uh, the course they taught on extraction, or at least that's how I understand it coming in um, as a new person about three years ago. Um, but the again, also, as I understand it, like the overwhelming nature of taking on this idea of private property made it really hard for the project to um, take form in, in Santa Cruz. Um, it's just like, where do you start? <laughs> um, so I think the Eco-Socialist Working Group was a really great place to um, work on it together and, and connect it to an activist practice. Um, that, that is my initial explanation. I would add that uh, abolition ecology has turned out to be a really productive uh, optic to work through. Um, and it, it correlates with our uh, intersectionalist approach to ecology where ecology is not simply about the natural or the wilderness. 
um, right? It, it is a, um, it's a site of uh, inextricable relationality between forms of social justice or injustice and um, political formations and environments. So they're all deeply enmeshed. And we take inspiration with this term from uh, a lot of folks in uh, African-American studies, uh, particularly Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's written about abolition as a form of opposition to incarceration in this country with its long roots in transatlantic slavery and its aftermath, uh, where abolition is a politics that refuses reformism and insists on completely structurally ending the, um, the industrial caging of human beings uh, within its you know, racist um, institutions like the prison and the police. So um, other people like Sadia Hartman and Angela Davis also stress adding on to that discussion of abolition, which Ruth Wilson Gilmore says has to be green as well because it taps into uh, really important traditions within African-American communities and also indigenous communities that have focused on uh, environmental injustices in terms of toxicity or, um, uh, you know, uh, disproportionate proximity to um, to pollution that those communities have suffered historically. Uh, and figures like Sadia Hartman and Angela Davis also explain that if abolition is to be truly transformative, it has to also be opposed to capitalism itself as an economic arrangement that is you know, thoroughly connected as well to forms of racism, uh, especially within our country, but you could also say more globally. So um, abolition ecology develops out of that uh, network of, uh, of uh, research insights to explore how our landscapes and our uh, environmental situations, and as well as atmospheres in terms of who is able to breathe and who can't breathe, right? All of these, um, these, uh, these arenas of, uh, of being are, are deeply uh, connected to forms of ultimately uh, economic inequality and the kind of um, racial and also gendered um, inequities that go along with it. So, you know, speculating about an abolition ecology asks how can we create new kinds of environments that are, um, that are liberated from those systems of oppression and um, the, the deep pervasiveness of um, the violence of property relations that structure our ways of being in the world. Um, so, so we've, you know, like Martabelle was saying, we've developed all these kinds of really engaging, um, inclusive and experimental participatory practices that actually begin by visiting uh, sites that are um, like conflict geographies between property relations, uh, forms of institutional racism, um, and uh, enclosures, as well as potential uh, places where an abolition ecology might take place in recalling these histories of colonialism, for instance, and um, other ways that uh, the non-human or more than human realm has been recruited as a device or technology of securitization and even weaponization. Yeah, I, that, I would add that um, all of these projects, I feel like we're constantly learning together. 
that that it's not like we're setting out with a um a fixed uh, you know understanding of things but the the actual doing of things is where our analysis gets developed and built and um and you know augmented and that is such a wonderful part about this this project i would also say that that um you know, I see more of a connection between these two projects, abolition ecology and the multi-species tribunal, because I, I think that, you know, on those very maybe seemingly theoretical levels, but of course it, it's it's all connected, um, owning land, privatization of land is not that different than owning bodies or the privatization of, um, you know, of the, the history of slavery, you know, you, that that sort of idea of ownership can be linked all the way through. And so this sort of um, way in which environmentalism split off from, uh, you know, anti-racism is a, is a really unfortunate um, divide. And I think that, you know, on many, many levels, we're understanding and feeling and walking and thinking through how these things are deeply, deeply connected from the, from, you know, deep into history. And, but um, as many indigenous practitioners and, and, you know, um, theorists and others, you know, offer to us, it, it hasn't always been that way. <laughs> um, and that there are other possible ways to not to go backwards to, you know, pre, um, pre, pre whatever, but but to use some of the possibilities that those other um, ways of relating to land and to persons and to bodies and to non humans um, could, you know, help us now. Thank you. And I want to return to something that Martabel mentioned as well, just kind of the possibilities or the affordances that come from thinking about these questions through art practice, through arts history, and how are each of you kind of thinking about thinking about that, thinking about those, those possibilities? It's so easy to be critical of like the art world and um, the academy and for, for so many good reasons. But I think um, for me, the, the thing is that they keep on being, they're, they're useful spaces to think and to make and to write. Um, so I find myself returning to, um, to these worlds. Um, but one thing that working um, with the eco-socialists and DSA in general in um, Santa Cruz has reframed for me is like the question of, um, audience and thinking about actually making things with and for a, c a community that I'm like rooted in rather than this um, like imaginary audience or this like imaginary, um, I don't know, like world in which uh, like I seek recognition. Like now I feel like I'm really trying to make and do and write and think like for the people and, and non-humans and land that I and like in dialogue with every day. And that's been a profound change moving from LA to Santa Cruz. It's like helped me redefine what's important to me and what my idea of success is. Um, and through that sort of like deep rooting in place that I've experienced since moving here, um, I find that I'm interested in like objects that I never would have thought I'd want to study in an art historical context like Carlton Watkins photographs and 19th century photographs of trees that um, are just like so overdetermined critically in all of these ways but I feel like I need to understand and revisit because of like how they've been activated 
for me through um, this idea of abolition ecology or the multi-species tribunal. Um, it's like, I have to understand where I am and these objects that I wouldn't have considered relevant to, to my work at all have become uh, suddenly very urgent. Yeah, adding on to that, I think, um, while I don't think we're really um, massively focused on art history, um, we're not ignoring it either, like Martabelle is saying. And I think it, you know, there's lots of, uh, of crucial resources that exist across history of uh, different kinds of experimental artistic practices um, that have always had an important role in some of the, you know, the major, for instance, revolutions of the past few centuries where um, cultural forms, uh, artistic activities had been integral parts of uh, these revolutionary events from the French and Haitian revolutions to um, anti-colonial um, uh, movements and revolutions in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America to the Soviet revolution to uh, the 60s, the situationists and all of that. I mean, there's there's tons of stuff uh, historically that we're mindful of, even though um, the discourse of uh, political ecology has been quite determined by, you know, really recent research, I think, in many ways. I think, although, again, with deep history, like Anthropocene uh, theories, for instance, extend history back thousands, even you know, millions of years in terms of um, uh, thinking about deep geology and um, that kind of history. So um, recent stuff has been really important to us all, I think, like, uh, um, for instance, um, stuff that, uh, that comrades have been doing in other parts of the world, like the Monsanto hearings in the Midwest uh, a few years ago, where a group of artists and activists placed this uh, agribusiness on trial in a kind of people's tribunal against crimes against the environment and humanity. That was uh, an important model for us. There's also the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project that Lori was involved with. Really um, an amazing uh, interdisciplinary activist and grassroots movement to hold the history of, um, of police violence and brutality and even torture accountable for uh, years of um, of uh, violence visited on the African-American community in Chicago. And then there's really, po there's also po positive experimental collective approaches to creative practice uh, that, um, you know, refuse to divide politics from art. Uh, for instance, the Zod in France, which is an, an experimental collective autonomous zone, the, the largest in Europe right now, that is dedicated to, um, to challenging the French state's plans to develop an airport in their area that would be really destructive to um, environmental con conditions there. So, you know, we're, we're aware of all this stuff and uh, for us there, they enter into our, um, our critical resources to help fuel our own speculative and imaginative thinking together. Yeah, I, I would say that part of what I hear and what TJ is saying is the way in which knowing what other people have done provides permission sometimes and and as well as inspiration um and it's it does loop back in some ways to pedagogy that you know what we can bring to our students around these liberatory kinds of practices um whether they're old or contemporary i think can open up 
you know, other ways of being in the world, other ways of acting and doing in the world that aren't limited through, you know, academic or um, verbal or, you know, uh, state-based structural, you know, attempts to change and all that. So I feel like art history has this potential to open up a much broader, a broader space. Um, I also just wanted to say that, you know, we're doing these embodied practices practices and they this sort of Elizabeth gets to I think another thing we might talk about um, in your questions but documenting what we're doing is becoming really important because we also want a, other people to know what we're doing and it's not because we want to put it on a resume it's like this possibility of um, exchanging stories and models and practices so that what we might be doing in Santa Cruz might be similar to the people in the Midwest, to the people in Florida, and and we can exchange, you know, ideas and, and practices. And that feels really key, I think, to what the at least the eco-socialists are are trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think thinking about how art history can be a part of movement history, you know, is is really important and a, and a way of activating that history, as you're saying, and kind of animating it. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wanted to ask as well, you know, how your work has really intervened in questions of kind of extraction and production and how you're thinking about models for your own practice that maybe don't rely on processes of extraction and production, particularly when you're working with communities. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak about that. Well, one of our projects uh, is a well, it's not a project, but it's a solidarity that we've established with um, the Amamutsun Tribal Band, which is one of the um, you know, original peoples that have lived in this area for millennia. And they're currently facing uh, a proposed plan to develop one of their areas that is, um, in fact, really their most sacred site. It's kind of like, uh, like Standing Rock for the Amamutsun, which is this area called Uristak in the Santa Cruz Mountains, um, where a corporation is attempting to uh, develop the area as a, a gravel mine. Um, so this is currently uh, really a, a direct form of, uh, of uh, settler colonial land appropriation and um, an extractive project to try to um, basically, you know, use the land and transform it into forms of economic wealth. Um, meanwhile, uh, stealing the sacred sites of uh, this indigenous um, group. And um, that's kind of the most, maybe one of the most direct ways that we're attempting to intervene in processes of extraction. Um, it's, you know, when you're working with, as, as non-Indigenous activists, when you're working with Indigenous folks, it's important to avoid some of the obvious traps, right, of actually inadvertently perpetuating forms of cultural extraction or, or something like that. Uh, and, and we're very aware of that. We know that, uh, you know, solidarity itself is a, a very um, delicate um, form of political belonging, especially when it involves relations of, of unequal power and privilege. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're actively thinking about these things um, in relationship to uh, recent indigenous critical approaches to decolonization. For instance, essays like decolonization is not a metaphor that insists that we um, 
we not metaphorize decolonization so it becomes a kind of white flight to innocence? Um, rather, we, we, uh, we agree as um, anti-capitalists that ultimately decolonization has to be about the return of land and sovereignty to indigenous people. Uh, so in attempting to work with the Amamutsen um, and join them in their struggle as much as we can, uh, we're trying to develop forms of solidarity that support uh, these, uh, these practices of, uh, of land-based struggles. And, um, and, and that also involves thinking about solidarity uh, critically and, and with imagination. We, we gain a lot of inspiration from the work of the Red Nation as well. They're an important um, group of, uh, of Native Americans based in Albuquerque. Uh, and they have lots of resources online with their website and they do uh, a podcast also and a radio show. Um, really great stuff um, is coming out of the Red Nation, including their proposal for a Red Deal, which supplements for us a radical Green New Deal. So this would be um, a proposal for decolonizing ultimately land relations and giving back land and sovereignty to indigenous folks uh, and a lot more. So um, what's, in, what's particularly inspiring about the Red Deal uh, in relationship to this is that um, they're attempting to say that, you know, we, we need, at the same time, we need to avoid forms of, uh, of uh, settler appropriation. We also uh, desperately need modes of solidarity between indigenous and non-indigenous people. And that is turning out to be really important, although admittedly a struggle, especially in this era of, uh, of real sensitivities around identity issues. Um, but, you know, this is, this is part, we don't, ha while we don't have the answers to this, you know, this is part of the challenge of how to uh, position oneself and, and think about this and, um, and work uh, creatively and with, with a lot of sensitivity with, with uh, other people coming from uh, really different backgrounds. I would like to add, too, that we're bringing those kinds of analyses more are closer to home within our own group um, in that, you know, the, the degree to which even, you know, three white people have very different positions in the world. And so trying to do a like a collaborative um, multi-authored project, you know, brings up all of these questions of power and, and who has more power, who has more um, clout in the world. And, and I think that what's really wonderful is thinking on these really large levels in terms of historically um, oppressed um, and bringing that into these micro levels as well, not in order to um, so, you know, oh, I'm more oppressed than you or I have more, but to just think it on all these different levels and bring the same sort of um, openness and compassion and learning to the intricacies of our collaborative relationships because it's not easy to collaborate <laughs> and it's really really fun and really liberating and wonderful but it's also really fraught because we're all these colonized subjects and we've all been brought up in this capitalist you know individualizing um, most of us um, uh, kind of context and so trying to sort through that stuff again not you know, in some uh, canceling or blaming sort of way at all, but in a way that just tries to be aware of those ways that we're relating to each other. And I'm, I'm really excited about that uh, sort of nested scale of, of work that's going on too. 
So I'm mindful that we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. And I was wondering, you know, what are the points that we haven't touched on yet that you would really like to talk about in the last 10 minutes or so? Oh, as I was reflecting and preparing for this, I was thinking like what, um, what it's like really important for me to convey. And I think um, the idea that like we can bring these politics to every sphere that we're in, like we're, um, we're all working in sort of academic artistic spaces, but um, like our, we're motivated by this really large project of trying to make an eco-socialist future or futures, you know, which we don't know what that means. And we're like, I think has been mentioned multiple times, we're learning and thinking together through doing all the time. Um, but I think that like talking about this um, in the context of like CAA is just to say that like every, we can bring this to everything that we do. Um, and uh, not only can't, can we, but we, we, ha we have to. And also, um, again, that involves thinking about and confronting lots of contradictions in, in uh, where we are right now. I mean, as Martabelle is saying, there's real, there's, there, there is world historical urgency in what's happening right now in terms of the, the threatened um, uh, catastrophe of our near future world. Of course, this is already going on. And for many people, indigenous people, um, African-Americans, the apocalypse is you know, hundreds of years in the past. Um, but the climate is an environment, um, the transformations that we're experiencing, the, the mass species extinctions that we're seeing, the destructions of uh, the web of life and our, the very viability of, uh, of human civilization to, to uh, exist within it is threatened. Um, and the, just the monumentality of that urgency is, is just, uh, it's overwhelming and uh, it's, it's really an enormous challenge to know how to deal with that professionally, pedagogically, ethically, experientially, psychologically. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not to say at all that CAA or art history or the university will survive. Um, so stuff is complex. And, we're, you know, as eco-socialists, we're convinced that what one thing that's fundamental to this is the dominant economic relations that, we're, that we find ourselves within that are dedicated to endless economic growth and keeping things the way they can, as if capitalism can provide the solutions to the catastrophe that it's created. Uh, we don't think that it can. Um, and we're aware that all you know, of our dominant institutions, including our educational institutions and our artistic institutions are also completely rooted within forms of you know, capitalist systems and, and its logic. Uh, and so this is, you know, this makes for really an end, endless struggle um, on all fronts in terms of how we can um, you know, create non-reformist reforms, build in toward meaningful transformation, even seeing the necessity of talking about large-scale uh, revolution. I mean, it, it's just, uh, it, it, there, there's no other way if we're on a collective path to suicide. We have to think um, across all these scales, on all these levels, um, 
And as people, we're all in the arts, uh, whether you know practicing or art history or visual culture, right? Um, it's really a, a, an enormous challenge to how to um, continue to inhabit a discipline in the face of just that expansive sense of emergency. I would add that, you know, that discipline is so historically individualized, whether it's the artists or the art uh, historians. And I think that we really just really need each other to figure it all out, um, or just to figure it out as we're going. And, and I think that those kinds of, um, you know, uh, cross, uh, those kinds of alliances are very complex and absolutely crucial right now to be building collectivities, affinity groups, ways to learn and work together. And it's so not what artists and art historians have done in the past. So I think it's a really, I mean, sort of some have, but it's a really important um, part of how to move now. Uh, yeah, I just wanna add that um, while we're dealing with these very difficult and depressing subjects, we are also doing things like public performances with 30 duck decoys on sticks and blue capes. And, you know, some of us even performed on a, something called the Duck Island stage. Um, so like we're talking about these, these issues, um, but I think play is an important part of what we're doing. Um, and like trying to, I, there, we, I just want to backtrack and say when we were working together on the um, climate strike, youth climate strike last year, we were um, collectively finding ourselves struggling a lot with the focus on the youth and also the emphasis on the future um, and future oriented climate politics. So I think it's really crucial for us to find joy and support each other in, in the present tense, which is, you know, it's very unclear every day if there's going to be like another wildfire or whatever, like the conditions are, um, are scary. And in, in, in Northern California, we're feeling that in certain ways, but we really, um, in addition to like working and thinking and making together, we also support each other in this kind of mutual aid framework um, where really if someone like needs, needs an N95 mask or, or whatever, like we're gonna um, mobilize and support each other in those very material ways as well as emotional, intellectual, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's so many seductions uh, of, uh, of pleasure these days, whether it's through consumerism or through Netflix or entertainment or um, you know, just buying stuff. Uh, but to have a kind of um, like political understanding of, of joy, again, not to, not to de-pleasurize our forms of joy, but right, right to, to, to collaborate on inventing and cultivating a kind of rebellious joy that's politically informed, um, that's collectively practiced and experimented with. This is something that's, that's really exciting. Uh, and it's not just, in other words, about uh, dour environmental protests, but actually uh, really participating in um, a kind of ambition to reinvent collective forms of life. Uh, and that's what makes um, being more than one really so interesting and engaging right now. Lori, I also think about your piece with the Fred Moten quote in the um, show TJ curated. Um, it's actually a quote from Edouard Glissant that Fred Moten um, swiped, but you know, with, with permission and, and used for a collective title for his three books, Consent Not to Be a Single Being. Yeah. 
Well, again, just a testament to that, that power of, of history and, you know, words and forms to travel and, you know, keep taking on meanings and giving, giving strength. So thank you so much. I mean, those are, those are really all of my, all of my questions and I want to be mindful of your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, this is great. And, and TJ. <laughs> yeah. Thanks everyone. <laughs>